Hello everyone and welcome back to Inside Art Scroll, where the books you read and the people who write them come to life. Today I am privileged to be joined by Rabbi David Greenblatt and Mrs. Debbie Greenblatt, son and daughter-in-law of Rev. Nata Greenblatt, about whom Art Scroll has just released a brand new biography. So thank you Rabbi and Mrs. Greenblatt for coming out here to Art Scroll to talk about the new book and to talk about your father and father-in-law, respectively, uh, really an amazing human being. And I'm excited to hear your personal reminiscences uh, of his life. And um, again, thank you. Our pleasure. Thank you, Hissiger. It's a pleasure to be at Art School. And uh, we, we can't think of a better way to spread his message. Uh, my father was humble and private, um, but he wanted the world to learn, and he wanted the world to grow, and he wanted people to, you know, teaching Torah was, uh, he went to Memphis, Tennessee to start a day school when no one else would, 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 would sacrifice such a, such a commitment. He, I want to, something you yeah. mentioned, he was humble and he was private. Yes. Which is interesting. What, what do you think his reaction would be if he would see that there's a biography about him? He would say, why are they wasting their time? What, what, they have nothing to write about. Like, what, what, the, the, and he had that, a great sense of humor. Oh, also, he had so. a great sense of humor. He would say, this is an Irish guy. He would say it to him, this was like, these weren't the things. Uh, a humble person means that it doesn't, it means that there are things of greater value. There are, there, there's, there, there's something more important than me. Mm -hmm. And therefore, uh, a book about me, like why would that be important to anybody? Right. There, a person, uh, you know, and, and that's how he lived. He didn't, uh, it made him approachable because um, things that makes people difficult to approach is because they have kind of a shield. They're not humble. They're always protecting themselves. He didn't protect himself. Right. He was open. Um, Part of his being an open book and uh, Shmuel Botnik, the author, who just did a magnificent job on this, uh, brings it out in such an eloquent way is that you're, you're, Rabbi Greenblatt was a, was an original. He was original. He was unlike any other. I was I was asking Shmuel Batnik, who who could you compare him to? Now that you've done years of research, he said you can't think of anyone else like Rabbi Nathan Greenblatt. Just a, a yachid b'minay. Talk about that. Um, I remember the first time that I met him. So um, we had just become engaged, and I had heard about Rabbi Nathan, and we were going to meet. There were, I don't know if it's still there. There was a restaurant on the, um, in Williamsburg called Gottlieb's. Of course, like, sure. <laughs> and I had never heard of it, really, coming from Far Rockaway. And I expected to meet this man with a you know, big-brimmed black felt hat and a dark suit and a white shirt. And in walks a man with a light-colored jacket and a colored shirt. And that was amazing. And, but everything he said was Torah deck. There was nothing that he said. There was no chit-chat. Everything right. that he said, he was warm, he was engaging, he was welcoming. But everything that he said was completely Torah deck. It's like the Torah flowed through him. Mm -hmm. So it really didn't matter to him at all, I don't think, like what the wrapping was. Mm -hmm. Also, I think that he, it was a, a way of respecting my mother-in-law, that she just, she was born in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh -huh. Her mother was born in Memphis, Tennessee. And I think that he just respected her 
and she just he just let her shop for him mm-hmm. and it didn't it didn't really matter I was going to ask you, I don't want to focus so much on the externals because it really doesn't matter, especially Rebnata showed us that how little the externals matter, but, um, but people are curious because they see pictures, they see videos. If, you have a, if people met him in person, I remember seeing him by, by several weddings and, and I, I was always intrigued by, by this personality, but what, was it on purpose, the straw hat, the, the light suit, the colored shirt, which is so atypical for an Adam Gadol, he was a he was a god of He was a a, a bucky nifla. Um, again, this is a, from reading in the book and and hearing so much about him. Someone who who spoke Nashim Nazikin with the Briskarov and 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 Reb Moshe and Gedoli Adar. He was able to converse with them with ease in in any part of of uh, you know Shas and and so on and so forth. So how do you explain that exterior? What, what, what would you I'll answer that. I'll, answer, I'll try to answer I'll just tell you, this story happened a couple of days ago, so it won't be in the book, unfortunately. But a fellow said to me, it was a young man in Staten Island. He was sitting in the base medrash. And Ramosha would spend time there, of course, because Rebruvain was there. And he says he's sitting in the base medrash one day, and in comes a man in a short coat with a straw hat and a clean-shaven fellow. And he looks at him. He doesn't know who he is. And he walks over to Ramosha. And him and Ramosha talk for 20 minutes, and it's ferocious. It's like... Like Tyrian talk, and it was, you know, they were they they were they, they, they were working through something difficult, and afterwards, my, my he didn't know it was my father. My father walked away, and he and he and he and he goes up to here, and he hears Ramosha tell Rav Ruben, he says, "Hi, dosa giving gishmak," you know, <laughs> that was gishmak. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I can't. How do you explain it? I think that, you know. His father was a Chashaviyid. He had also started the first day school in, in Newark. Uh, the Talmud Torah had been the, the 15 shuls had Talmud Torahs, and that was the way of supporting the shul. And right. it was a process, you know, and that was a, a successful, you know, entrepreneurship was that the shul had income from this. But my grandfather saw that there won't be a, a Hemshech from this because, as we all know, the Talmud Torah movement goes up till the Bar Mitzvah, whatever, and then the and my, father start, my grandfather started the first day school, which is uh, still around. I think it's the Kushner Academy today. I think it's been renamed several times. But it, th- that, was, um, that was because he felt that if we're going to have a Hemshech and there's going to be something meaningful. We have to have a day school. I, my father, he, a humble person and a private person can have his own world. And you need your own world if you want to... The world we're in is hard. There's a lot of noise there. There's a lot mm-hmm. of challenges. Every one of us battles all of them, and there's certainly even more today than there would have been five or ten years ago, maybe. But my father lived in his world, and his world was a world of Torah. It was a world of Achrayas. It was a world of what would HaKadosh Baruch want from me. It was a private world. He wouldn't tell you any of this, but you could see that, you know, so it didn't matter where he was, whether he was on a train or a bus, or he was in, he was in the Rambam's world, he was in Rashi's world. He was, mm-hmm. I think, uh, the story might be in the book that someone called him and said, today's Rashi's yard site. And my father said, he died? And, you know, so his, 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 his world was one of Rashi and the Rambam, and, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and of Torah, and of Achrayas. And therefore, humility lets you do that because... Right. Uh, it lets you do that, and it also lets you think entirely. You know, 
Revolba has a safer called Kenyan Torah, I think it's called, and he talks about how we should think in Torah. So if you see a car wreck, you should say, is he a mazik? Is, is it grom? Is it garmi? What is the ki- what kind right. of damage was everything this? Through the everything prism through the prism of Torah. My father saw everything through the prism of Torah. Mm. You know, I don't know if there is a, a, this may or may not, but I remember I was sitting in Memphis, I was a child, I don't think it's in the book, and my mother who was, um, a regular Memphis woman reads the newspaper and says to my father, she says, so-and-so family just married a non-Jew. They, you know, they married a shiksa. And I'm between my mother and my father, and he says, Kedushin is not typhus with a shiksa. You can't marry a shiksa, which is, the, and, you know, and I'm looking at the two, and I said, here's a yid. He, he's living in the mission in Kedushin. You know what I mean? He's living yeah. in the fact that that's a, that's a perspective, that's the, mm-hmm. the perspective of Torah, of how you know, we look at Rahman Zayn. I think the reason why, what I was talking about the externals, the reason why, it was, why it's so refreshing is because we live in a world, and I, I'm not taking a stance on this, for better or for worse, there's a, a tremendous amount of, of importance and stress placed on conformity. Right, everyone has to conform, no one wants to be too much out of the box. And you, know, you, don't know, you don't want to be called a free thinker because then you know, you're like, uh, you know, out of the mainstream. Um, your, your father didn't, didn't seem to care much about that. Like you said, he cared about Torah learning, Torah living, what he could do for Hashem, what he could do for others, and, and everything else, it wasn't even secondary. It was just not, it wasn't, right? It wasn't it was even It was from real. his youth because here's a person who's a, he was a Ben Bias by Rabbi Misha, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the letters to my father, and I think one or two might be in the book, it says, Ohov Kibni. Mm-hmm. And I know when I would go after I grew up, I'd go with my father to Moshe when he came to the door, the rabbits and the Moshe, not to hear, not to hear, the excitement was mamish like a son came back to visit, oh. you know. And yet he packed up and walked and moved to Memphis as a bacher, left that world, and you know, took a bus to Memphis, Tennessee to take a job in a Talmud Torah because he wanted to teach Torah and he wanted to, he felt that he would, he would use his kachas for that. I think in a lot of ways he turned down Shiduchim, as any, any successful Ben Teira has opportunities for Shiduchim, it was no different then. And he turned down opportunities because he wanted to, he didn't want, he wanted to be able to go into, to travel, he would not be able to do that if you marry a daughter of Rosh Hashiva, you're in the mm-hmm. Yeshiva, you know. You're you wanted there. that freedom? Yeah, oh yeah. He would mockingly say all the time, I made that guy a Rosh Hashiva, I made that guy a Rosh Hashiva. I said, we made a Rosh Hashiva. He said, they came, the Rosh Hashiva offered me their daughter, the Rosh Hashiva. And I said, no, not for me, but take Yankel, take Chaim, take Beryl. And they ended up becoming the Rosh Hashiva today, you know, understandably, uh, in this uh-huh. kind of... But it, it, so he, he turned down opportunity. But so this, 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 this focus on what, what Hashem would want from me and a lack of concern about conformity was really when he was started from his, from his, mm-hmm. from his youth. Uh, his, his, it was attached to G'dalim, he loved the opportunity to talk. Well, a, by the way, on that topic, speaking of, he, he loved G'dalim, he loved G'dalim Taira. Um, talk about the fact that he lived in a relative midbar for, for decades. It wasn't like he was surrounded by yeshivas and by Bnei Taira, who he loved. I remember, I remember seeing when he would come to Lakewood, any time he was in Lakewood, the Bnei Torah would flock to him and they yeah. would surround him, whether it was by a simcha or anywhere else. He was like a magnet. But in, in, in Memphis, he didn't, really, he didn't have that. But somehow, he, his, his fire kept burning. What, what do you think was the, was the secret part? I, I think that he enjoyed it so much, but it was a, that was a personal enjoyment. Mm. And I think that he was a man with a mission. And so there, you know, anytime he had the opportunity to 
go to Lakewood, or if B'nai Torah came home Ben Hazmanim and he could give a share on Cholomite Pesach or Cholomite Tzukas, he, you could see that he just loved it. I mean, it's not, he, he just thrived on it. But there wasn't room for that because if you're on a mission, then you're on a mission and you mm -hmm. just have to do your mission. Mm. So I, I, I think that there was very little in my father-in-law's life that was about him. I think he was like the vessel through which Hashem flowed in, in this world. Hashem's Torah, Hashem's Chesed flowed in this world. Um, the last few years, my youngest brother-in-law, Yoel, so he, my in-laws were Labdu and Chaim Lachaim already older. They were a little bit home, a little bit more. And my brother-in-law would get my father-in-law to tell stories. So, you know, you ask a person to tell a story. And they start with, well, when I was in Las Vegas, and they tell you the story. He never started a story like that. His stories was, there was a yid that needed a get, <laughs> right? So there was very little of the I there. Mm -hmm. So even like being willing to exile himself to a veritable midbar. I mean, Memphis is a great place. Right. And, um, but there's relatively, it's not Lakewood by any right. standard. I, I think he was a man with a mission. And I think that I didn't know, I never met my um, father-in-law of Shalom's father, Yitzchak Greenblatt. I'll just tell you a cute aside that my father-in-law for many years was a Moel. Mm -hmm. So, my husband David is his oldest son, and my first child was a boy, and it was Shabbos in Farakaway before there was an Erev. So, the bris had to be wherever the mother and the baby was. Mm -hmm. And it was in my parents' Aleim Mashalem's home in Farakaway. And when it came time to name the baby, um, you know, usually the mole turns to the father. But maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But he just named the baby after, <laughs> after his father. After his father, he didn't even ask you. <laughs> my eldest. So I have to say that my guess is, though I never met my father-in-law's father, that it was a family with an independent streak. Mm-hmm. I would say that all of the children have an independent streak. So my guess is that it didn't start with my father-in-law. Uh -huh. He might have brought it forward quite a bit, <laughs> but it probably didn't start with him. Right, right, right. What would you say, David? I would agree, but I think it, I think that it's, it allows a person to, to, conformity stops us from becoming the best that we can become. Yeah, we, right. we, we waste our cycles on trying to make sure wondering what, whether we're conforming or not. And if you can shed that, you can say, well, I have to be the best I can with the Kalem HaKadosh Baruch who blessed right, me with. Right, right. And uh, It's not about what other people will say, it's about what their Rebunish right. will say. That, that's what he lived, that's um, what he lived with. Exactly. And I think right. only someone with that attitude, like you were saying, could, could do what he did, which is fly millions of miles all over the world at his own expense for the most part to help people, whether it was forgetting or other things. The stories are in the book, stories that have been told many, many times. Some 
more famous, some less famous. Um, and the author was telling me some stories that are, that are, that are not in the book as well. Um, and he mentioned as well to me that your father kept a, a meticulous uh, accounting of all his travels. Uh, yeah. Do you still have that? Have it all. All his plane tickets and, ticket. and hotel stays and rent the cars and so on and so forth. Everything is there for posterity. Or like I, like I told Shmuel, the, this, his tickets to Ganeiden of the people well, he helped. I, I think I have, someone could only do that if right. they, ha they don't have a personal agenda. Right? I have to go through the million tickets because he also wrote terror on the back of them. If he, would have, if he would have a thought in Kodshim, he would write it in the back of the airplane ticket. And, it, and it's in there, and I've got to go, go through them, which is a, you're talking, I don't know, thousands of airplane tickets and stuff that are a lot. And uh, he would put wow. his Torah there when he would have a machshava. Because that's, he in fact liked, he felt that he would sometimes take long bus trips because he could sit and learn. Mm -hmm. And he was in his own world there, and he could do it for hours. And as far as being alone in Memphis and missing the world of Torah, he had it in Memphis because he had the Rambam there and he had Rashi there. And, and he, if, if you watched him, you see he was living with them. And there was, yes, it's not the same as the give and take of the Lakewood based Medrash, or any base Medrash, but, it's, uh, but that was his, uh, you know, that was the world he lived in. It was a good I, I think that's, that's refreshing also because it's a chizik that people who are watching this conversation, that people who are going to read the book, who are across the world, you know. Yeah. The, sometimes we think that uh, our world, we live in a bubble, and we think it's a, you know our block, our shul, our yeshiva, our city, our state. There's a wide world out there with so many yidden and neshamas spread out across the world who could be inspired by that. That you could reach the pinnacle of Torah greatness and also chesed, living wherever it is, as long as your mission and your goal is is so pure, like his was. Um, you know, that, that's definitely unique. He encouraged people. He encouraged people. If you said to him, he would say often, where do you live? And the guy would say, I don't know, Passaic, uh, uh, Jackson, or Lakewood, whatever. He'd say, why don't you go to Birmingham? And or uh, literally, that would be a common conversation. And uh, mm -hmm. I don't think there's one in the book. There was one, it's not in the book. One fellow came, he said he went to Memphis. It's not in the book. He said he went to Memphis. He went to visit Renata. And he, he had this conversation. He said, where do you live? He said, I don't know, Passaic. My father said to him, well, why don't you go to, to, to New Orleans? Why don't you go to... And the guy thought, he said, oh, the, the guy wrote, he said, he, he wrote in this, in this WhatsApp little, little note, he said, at least I know how we got stuck in Memphis, because that's how he thinks, you know what I mean? <laughs> but then the guy said, the next day he went to Minion, and they didn't have a Balkari. And he says, I'm a Balkari, but no one has asked me to lane in five years, because mm -hmm. they have Baruch Hashem, and I had to lane in Memphis. I understood what, that there, would, that there could be a role for a person. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that my father wasn't telling a person to go to Birmingham or New Orleans or San Antonio because chas v'sholem he wanted, he felt that a person, if you can sit in Memphis and you can learn and you can become, you can be an Evid of Hashem, so why can't you, why can't every person do that? I mean, I don't know that it's as easy for every other person. He certainly mm -hmm. can't, you have to, can't counsel a person so easily that way. Right. But, but he did it and he felt that a person, there is a, there is a, a Ra from San Antonio had four sons and uh, he asked my father that he has an opportunity to leave, uh, to, to go to New York, and he was concerned about his sons. And my son said, I give you Avtocha, you'll have all B'nai hmm. And the Rav has four sons, one in the Detroit Kola, one in Lakewood, one is a Rav in Chicago, and one took over the children of San Antonio. Uh -huh. And when my father started his yeshiva at the age of 91, uh, the Rav sent a check of an inordinate amount of more money than a Rav normally could afford to send. He said, I curse a toy for the, for the bracha. But my father felt if you're Ehrlich and you're Ernst and you're in San Antonio for mm -hmm. this, that message will go through to your children and you'll have many Torah. Mm 
you know, and they'll, they'll, but at the end of the day, it's, it's who we are and what we, what we are inside that affects our children. And he felt that this Rav would, would have this Hatzlech, which mm -hmm. he did. So. Well, would you say, was that a, uh, did he have this streak of Kirov? Because it, it didn't come off that way. It wasn't like your, your, your father and father-in-law were, was in Kirov. That's not what he was no, doing. No, I think that every Jew mattered to him. You know, I remember many, many years ago hearing, probably from my mother-in-law, that my father-in-law had gone, flown to Frankfurt, Germany, to give a woman a get. And I remember thinking to myself, there's no Rabbanim in Europe that could, you know, <laughs> write a get for, for a woman. But it didn't, that wasn't a husband to him. I think that every Jewish person to him was the same, the same importance, the same cover, the same weightiness. So if, to me, to, to my father-in-law, getting on a plane was like you and I getting in a car. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was a million miler on several, several different airlines. airlines. Uh -huh. Yes, there but was, it, it was a you know, it, this concern and this willingness to 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 travel. I think it's it was a, it wasn't a suffolk even to him. Like it was like, and he didn't ask anybody, didn't tell. He just felt that he had to do it. Um, you know, and it was. How did your mother deal with, with, with his spontaneity of just picking up and going to, to help people uh, over? I mean, uh, did, did it take a toll on her? Uh, what, what, did she look at it as a sacrifice? No, no, no. I ask you, as a, what would you I say? I think my mother-in-law is an amazing woman. She is, first of all, a an extremely capable person, extremely resourceful. She, she made a, a beautiful home and I think gave her children, you know, everything that they could need. You know, they, they, they had nice clothes, they, they had, you know, she taught them typing. I know she, she gave them everything. She's a, she, in, her, in a sense, is a self-sufficient woman. I'm sure that it was hard when the kids were younger. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine that it wasn't hard. But when I already knew her, um, there was a tremendous acceptance of that her husband is doing important things. And, you know, uh, she would answer the phone. <laughs> she would answer the phone like this. Um, someone would ask for Rabbi Greenblatt, and she would go, 302-555. And it wasn't his cell number because it was before cells, cell phones. So it was the number of the person that he was staying with in oh. Mississippi or Louisiana oh, or wow. Arkansas or, or California or Washington State. So she would just be like the secretary and she would just keep the list of numbers of where, of he, was. where he was so that you could, you could catch him if you, hmm. if you needed him. But she, I never heard her complain about it. Wow. But I know people would call him also at, at, at ungodly hours. I mean, uh, they would call him 1, 2 o'clock in the morning with a, with a crisis, and he, and he would pick up the yeah, phone. He, he, he would answer the phone. If he was in the middle of a shear at YU and there were 400 boys or a Nary Yisrael and there were 600 boys, he would answer the phone because he felt that he has an right. and some of them were. Sometimes he would work on getting a get out of a person for 10 years. 
Right. And if he missed that phone call, he'd missed that opportunity. Mm -hmm. I think an interesting indication of it is, is love of every yid was, not, I don't know if it's in the book or not, but a mole from Dallas called him that he was at was called to do a get, and the fellow was unfortunately a Jew that had already was serving Yushka, you understand? He was a, he'd already, a, you know, a J for J as we call him. And he asked my father, what should he do? This is, you know, that's a good Shaila, you could hear a rough, <laughs> His name is David Shaw, and and my father said to him, what's the matter with you? You don't believe in tshuva? You know, a yid can do tshuva. So, you know, here's a, you know, there's a perspective there. There's a here's a person that's, as far as we're concerned, you know, maybe a mesis, you know what I mean? Maybe, a, certainly on the opposite of, of any of any spectrum that we mm -hmm. can define. And in my father's mind, he said, what says he? Give, you have to do a bris, he's a yid, and you have to do a bris, and you don't believe in tshuva? So if, you, if, you, if that's your perspective, even of the most extreme, this is far more than the, than the nebuch, you know, the, the yid that have not had an opportunity to learn or wow. have an education. Um, that was his perspective. I think it says a lot about uh, how we need to look at, uh, at our brothers and sisters. Right, right. Yeah. if you would say Kirov, Kirov Rechokim to him, he wouldn't know what you were talking about. Right, that's what I'm figuring. He didn't, because he, mm -hmm. he was looking, he saw Yidin, and he knew he wanted to impact them, and bring, it, but it, was, it but wasn't the, under the, the umbrella of Kirov. But, but the impact that he had on so many, I feel that mostly, it wasn't like he was making a concerted effort. It was by virtue of who he was. Mm. Like, I mean, much has been already made of the story when he, you know, told Mr. DeBrown, you know, to give up his paper route and he'll pay him a dollar, the dollar fifty that he would make. And now there's generations of a mishpacha, but that wasn't a, a cure of ploy. That was like, this Shabbos. Shabbos is worth more than a dollar fifty a week. Mm -hmm. So I'll pay the dollar fifty a week. It was right. just who he was. And I think that. That was so compelling to him. On his last trip to Eretz Yisrael, it was for our oldest granddaughter's wedding. And a couple who now lives in Eretz Yisrael, and who he was Makariv, came to see him. It was like coming to pay homage to their Rebbe. Mm. I, I was there. There were just tears. Like, oh. how how do you how do you thank a person for giving you life in this world and mm -hmm. life in the next world and and doros and and generations? You know, they're very reticent people. I don't even know that they were interviewed for the book. Mm. Speaking about speaking about that, about people being interviewed and telling their story. So Shmuel Botnik told me something very interesting. He said what was unique about this book, there's, you're, Reb Nata Greenblatt didn't head some large organization who had, that had a big email list that you could contact. You know, he had to start doing research and he started re reaching out to Yidden in far-flung places. And it, it was, he was like, on, on, he was a man on a mission to dig up Reb Nata's story, which is also an interesting phenomenon, and he and he, he couldn't believe some of the people he spoke to where where they were and how somehow your father reached them, and just that also uh, just creates such a, a unique facet to his life story, reaching so many people in so many places, disparate people. I'm sure there are people that that 
you know, we didn't get to for this book, and more stories will come in. But I know there are because there's almost every day or every other day someone tells me a story. My dad, I just spoke to a, 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 a Rova Devada Kashras in Queens. I was talking about some topic, and he said, oh, he said, I w my, my father was a rabbi in New Orleans, and I was six or seven years old, and uh, your father was in New Orleans at our house, and I watched him, David Shmanesri, and I remember till today, the man is my age, he's not young, and he said, I was blown away at Ishmael Esrei, the way he davened. I never saw a person so, so immersed in his tefillah. That he's telling me this story 60 years later. Mm. And it was part of being in his own world. Now, that Shimon Esrei was, it didn't matter that it was in New Orleans. It didn't matter you're in Memphis. They told my wife on the way up, my father really never lived in Memphis. He was in his own world, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and it didn't right. know, you know, uh, he was in his own world. When um, we were first married, I was very young, and I got my first teaching job. And I really didn't know what I was doing at all. <laughs> and they gave me like a 12th grade class to teach um, like medieval Jewish literature. And I had to teach the, the piyutim of Rav Yehuda Halevi. I assure you, I did not know them. <laughs> but I would call my father-in-law at night. Okay. And he would teach them to me on the phone. And he, he knew it? He, no, verbatim. there was no, there was not one, there was no two second delay mm -hmm. between, I, I would just say which period it was, and he would, and then one, I'll never forget, one evening I called him, I said, I, I really don't understand this at all. And he said, Devira, Devira, I have a tune for that one. <laughs> so he had, he had music to go with the Piyutim of Rav Yehuda Levi, like, who has that? No, he was a beautiful chazan, right? He was yes. An old fila, but yeah. It, yes, he was a beautiful old fila. It was, you know, he knew the pure shamila, which right away right. is a is gives a, it a different flavor. <laughs> different flavor. Different flavor. And he was um, being in his own world, made his yom kippur be a yom kippur, and his mm -hmm. rosh hashanah, and his 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 purim and his tisha b'av. They were all in his. Uh, um, I was in uh, I was in YU once, and a guy comes over to me and says, "I went to Memphis once. I don't want some learning program in there." And he said, I was in your house for Tisha B'Av, and I don't think I ever saw anybody, uh, you know, cry for the base dish like I saw this fellow told me. He said, I don't, I don't well, think I ever saw that. <laughs> and this is in Memphis. So it was in, you know, um, Rashi's living, the base Hamikdash was just destroyed. Everything uh, was real. Everything was real. By Kriya Satori, you needed patience because he, he was he was watching the conversation between between Yitzhak and Yaakov, between Yitzhak and Esav. He's watching it. He's he's there, and um, I think if we can do that, if a person and I, and I want, I think it's important to say that the I, I really hesitated to 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 see that there should be a book because here's a person who's been humble and private his whole life. What right do you have to? What right do you have? And I think that the point is that we have to see what we can learn. The point of the book is. And I wrote it in my introduction. And what say, do you think that is? What is that? I think that the point is that every person has to really, you know, as you disconnect from their externalities and from their conformity and really see what's the, what is their real kesher? Where, where is their, what is their real relationship to their achrayas, to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, to, to Torah, to Kalal Yisrael, to their brothers and sisters? I think that every person um, has a responsibility to do that. And that's mm -hmm. Hashem is going to ask that of every one of us. Mm -hmm. is, uh, I think that's the lesson here, you know, and uh, uh, we have to answer for ourselves. Uh, I think it's, 
For that, it's Kadai to have a book. So it's not about watching what someone else did. The question is, how can I learn from this? How can I grow from this? How can I, um, you know, what's the message for me? And uh, I think there's a message for people. I think there's a message for everyone. My father was no different than every other person in that mm -hmm. regard. He was a regular person. Uh, he didn't, uh, I, I mean, would, I, I would say he was blessed with, with certain he abilities. He was a Balkishran. He was right, a Balkishran, and he had a love of Would tyrus. you say he was brilliant? I'd, Yes, I don't. I that. I mean, uh, yeah. and, he, and he had a remarkable uh, memory. He didn't forget. Remarkable, remarkable memory, almost to the very almost, end. Yeah. Uh, the last uh, eight months of his life was so we had the privilege of having him live with us in our house, and it was an amazing thing. It was really an amazing thing. You know, I was reflecting and I was thinking that certainly in his own home. It's a very comfortable, welcoming, beautiful home. Um, I don't think that I ever, in all the years, saw him sit on a couch. He sat by the table, he participated in the meals, he had his own steady little base medrash that they built on mm -hmm. to, the, to the house. And, uh, you know, he'd come, in, he, he'd come in the kitchen, you know, every once in a while to get um, some very boiling hot water with a little bit of mazainess, as he would say, that my mother-in-law always had a supply of on the counter. But he never just sat around. That, that wasn't the thing. And I, I remember thinking a few times over those last months that he was in our home, that when he sat in a chair, like even how he walked and how he sat, even the end was I would call it ramrod straight mm -hmm. like and to me it was almost a representation of like a certain yashras that was there he was he was clear he was yashar he was straight in his dealings and had a, a clear vision of, of what his life needed to be and in a certain sense, that's an amazing blessing. Mm -hmm. Like, how much time do we, each of us spend wondering, like, am I doing the right thing? Am I living the life that Hashem wants me to live? But he didn't, he didn't do that. He somehow early on must have had a very clear, clear vision. When he went to Memphis, was, is this in the book, David? That when he went to Memphis, he had a lifelong friendship with Rev. Benjamin Kamenetsky. Mm -hmm. And Rav Benjamin Kamenetsky took him to the train, I think it was, was it the train? When he was going to Memphis for his first job. To Memphis, he was a bacher. He was probably about 26 or so. No, he was younger. He was, was younger? Yeah, okay, a little bit younger. Yeah. And, um, and Rav Benjamin, who they, they were friends for their whole lives, said, I'll pick you up in two weeks when they throw you out. <laughs> 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 but... Uh, that didn't bother him. Mm -hmm. I'll give you an example, Father. He, you know, he didn't talk about it, unless you asked him, he didn't. So I once asked him, did you ever meet the Chaznish? He said, Zichar, he said, I went into his home in Bnei Brak, and it, this is my father's humor, and this is my father. And he says, so I came in, I sat down in the living room, the Chaznish was lying on his couch. He would lie on his couch probably after, you know, learning for 22 hours. So I sat over a Chiddush, and the Chaznish said to me, Nu dosedayin Chiddush, that's your Chiddush. And my father says to me, 
What does he mean? That's my chiddush. The whole chasnish is farmer full with his chiddush, and why can't I have one also? <laughs> you know, <laughs> that was <laughs> that was uh, just. But it was a story you only got out if you asked. Right, you know what right, I mean? Right. You didn't ask you never. I never heard the story till you mm-hmm. asked. But uh, I think that um, it was a, a lifetime this way. He, he told me for his bar mitzvah. He said. Uh, he said his father told him when he was 12, he said, I don't know if we're going to have a bar mitzvah. So my father said, well, what do you mean? I'm, I'm 12, I'm 13. So my father so my father said, you know, a yid needs to know one masech, the shakla v'tari, one masech needs to know well for a bar mitzvah. So my father said, so I, I learned Kedushin Gomor Ashi Taisos. He said, because I have my bar mitzvah. That was the, uh, really? that was he told me, yeah. Wow. And, uh, and again, the, the thing that strikes me is that this is the same person who knew Kedu, who finished Kedushin Gomor Ashi Taisos by his bar mitzvah, who knew who knew a Welt, who, when it came time to be there for Klai Israel, he taught Alf Bez in a, in a cheder. Yeah, there wasn't. Which, not, which, which, not only would, that, would he, he considered... Would he did, you even hear such a he, thing? He cons- and without, without getting paid for it. Right, right. right. he considered it a privilege. He didn't... It wasn't like, oy vey, I'm stuck here teaching Alf Bez, like we would say, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. you, know, you know, I should be teaching... I, like most Ben Nator, I should be teaching the, uh, the base Medrash here, and I'm stuck here in the Alf Bez here. To him, it was a privilege. To him, it was, Torah was Torah, and uh, if you came in and said, will you learn with me? He said, whatever you want to learn. He didn't. And you could open up a safer, and he would pick up, uh, sometimes Balpez, but Torah was there, from Aleph Bays, from Aleph Bays to all of Nigla, there was no, there wasn't any, there was no boundary. He could learn with you whatever you wanted. Why would it make a difference? What do you want to learn? And I think it also let him, he was in contact with all the parts of Tyra. You know, it was Arba Chalke Shulchan It wasn't just this part or that part. And that was what speaking, was remarkable. about his learning, I'm just curious, because I, I, did, did he have a, a seder of what he learned? Did he, did he, did he learn Shas? Did he learn Halacha every day? Did he have a seder? Ayoyim? What, 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 what's Because that? of his privacy, I don't know either. You don't know? No. Because you see, anyone you speak to who was in contact with, with Rabnata said he knew Kala he could speak any Masechta, any Sifin Shulchan Aruch, he was comfortable with the Noise Kalim. That's, I that, tell you, in about that's not half me a, saying it. In a half a year to a year, I'm going to put out a safer. He left a lot of Torah. And now I'm seeing already, it's being retyped already. There are a few hundred Shtiklach Torah there. And they are, they're Torah on topics that, just to start the topic, you have to be an expert in Kachim. Mm-hmm. Just to, to start, before you, even, before you begin, the topics, the, 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 the detail and the, the mastery of the topics, which are not the topics even of, of, of a rub of a day-to-day job. The, right. the, 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 the chuvas and the detail is amazing. I mean, 10, 15 pages on topics that we, we wouldn't know where to start. I'm, I'm an average right. mentor. I mean, I'm sure there are big time that will. I hope there will be. But... You know, his mastery was not, and because he was w- learned everything, was willing to learn everything, and was excited about everything. I think that one, l- listening to my father and watching him, it was, there were a few, there were a few teachers in Kaleidoscope, at least in my own lifetime, that watching them teach was more than what they taught. Just watching their excitement. Rav Kalevsky was one of them, mm-hmm. and Chaim Berlin. They had one Rabbi Freifeld used to talk about. But there, there, there were when they when they gave a shear, you watched them rather than the just watching their excitement with Torah. My father mm-hmm. was that way. You were watching him. You were watching him. 
you know, and that's important because we need to find a place of Torah that we like and that we love and that we can connect to and that's, that's meaningful to us. Mm. There's a message right there, you know, what to find our, our spot and our type of Torah, whatever it is for each person that he wants to tell somebody about that he's excited about. Mm. And I, 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 again, I thank Art School for doing this because I, I want the message to get out and I want Klai Yisrael to grow from it. He would want that. That's mm -hmm. really what he would want. He wouldn't want anybody to know about his private life or his humble life or, right. or about his stories. And he would say, that's all Narish Kitan. What does that matter to anybody? But he would want them to, to say, what about me? Like, why, if he mm -hmm. could go to Memphis, Tennessee and do this, like, uh, oh, wh where am I, you know? I mean, yeah, he was very, very private about his own Yiddishkeit. You mm -hmm. cannot even ask him, like, you know, did you daven Mincha? He would say, it's none of your business. Oh, really? <laughs> he would say that? Yes. Yeah. Uh -huh. yes so surely was... chumras and things like that, you would have no, he was very private. On like himself, that. he took great chumras. Uh -huh. My father, if you saw him in Shul and Shabbos, he often had a hat on. Everybody else has a yarmulke on, he has a hat. You mean when he was wearing his talus? With his talus and a hat. With his talus? The talus would have a black hat on, or whatever his hat was, whatever color it was. Right. And but he wouldn't wear his talus over, over his head, that's what you mean? I mean no, no, it wasn't. The hat would be a hat. And often people are looking at that. The, some of the ekas wear hats, whatever. Right. And it's because he didn't have a yarmulke. And why didn't he have a yarmulke? Because he wouldn't, even though he had built Erevin in many cities, he felt there is a chumrah that we can't be semichon in Erev because there are rishonim that hold that our, our rishus harabim are real rishus harabim. Mm -hmm. They're doraisa, therefore you can't build an Erev. So for his own self, the man who put up the Erevin in many cities would not, and even to the point of wearing a yarmulke under a hat, so here's a, a chumrah on a chumrah by yid that for the world is being makel that no one knows. So they're all asking me, why is your father wearing his hat? Uh -huh. What am I supposed to say? He doesn't have a yarmulke. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm giving an example, but that I didn't, I didn't know this my whole life. I uh -huh. didn't. I was wondering myself, and uh, until I finally figured this out. But he was, he wouldn't well. tell you. So he was machmer on himself, but he was uh, worked hard to find to permit for others things that were difficult for them. He did not, he wanted to make, which is the, that's the obligation of a posek, is to really help people to right. be able to live a Torah life is, is, without, without giving them things that would be too hard for them. Right. But on himself, he took lovers. I'll tell you a story. So when we were first married, so there was a new wife setting up a home, you know, oldest daughter of two Holocaust survivors, no older sisters, cousins. So there were questions that came up. So I started, of course, to call my new father-in-law. And whatever I asked him, he said, mutter, mutter. And I said, this is great. I have my own personal, you know, lenient Punch rabbi, posek. This is, you know, put him on speed dial. <laughs> and then a few months after we were married, I called him with a question about if something was um, allowed on Shabbos. And somebody had told me that such a thing is allowed. I don't know that I should say exactly what it was. But so with great confidence, I picked up the telephone to just sort of verify with my mm -hmm. father-in-law that this was in fact allowed. And he said, you know, he was a takif, you know, there was sure. a fire there. And he said, ah, sir, like that left no question. And I realized that I hadn't gotten myself uh, my own lenient posake, but I had gotten what I had had the good fortune to marry into, 
was someone that had complete clarity. Mm. So when something was mutter, it was, there's nothing to discuss. But when it was asa, there was also nothing to discuss. Mm-hmm. You know, I would watch him. He was in Memphis 70, 80 years. I told my wife in the car, most rabbis after seven years in Memphis would be playing tennis and golfing, you know, that's what, they, <laughs> what is the city doing? And he would go to bench and get his hat and his jacket, no matter where it is, the same way a young man does when he's, when he's 14, 15 at the mm-hmm. base. There was, this was, his behavior was no different than it had been, you know, mm-hmm. and he's a zuckain, it's not even easy to go get a hat and a jacket, but that wasn't even a... Uh, it was part of being in that world. His world was that world, and it didn't matter how old he was, and it didn't matter where he was. And it doesn't. It didn't matter that there was no one around to be impressed at all. At yeah. all. At all. It didn't. Yeah. It didn't matter. Ishmael Esri was no different whether he was in the front of the Tzibur or whether he was. A, he he was in Shoyashiv when he was ninety-two years old, and he stood up for the whole Yom Kippur. They still haven't recovered. The young people <laughs> haven't recovered. He stood for the entire Yom Kippur, wow. but not. And, 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 and you, only if you looked. In other words, if you yeah. looked, you realize you know he's not sat down. He never sat down. But that was. Um, this is a person in that world of, of what his obligation was, and mm-hmm. uh, and it was blessed with Arichus Yomim probably you know as a, as a gift for that. Of course, he said it was because he had a bracha from Rav Cook when he was seven, and mm-hmm. I, uh, I can't take away Rav Cook's bracha, bracha Hashem. <laughs> but uh, if actually, in my father's humor, he said Rav Cook gave him, gave, he said to my to his to my father's father, knew he should have a richus yamim, he should be a big talmud chacham, and my father said it was at least half true. <laughs> you know, half classic. True. <laughs> classic, classic. That's what you would expect. <laughs> the author told me that the hardest part of getting stories from people was that. Everything that he responded was classic. They knew that. So to the people, this wasn't a story because, of because, course, Rav to said that. Uh-huh. What do you, what, of course, he, so I don't have a story really because, of course, he would have said that. There's yeah. so much to unpack about his life, and and a lot of that is done in this book. Great. And we thank both of you for facilitating this book because this book right. would not have happened without your foresight and without your support and your encouragement and and asking Shmuel Botnik to undertake this project and and like I told him I think you've given the world a gift so. where the Rabbani Shalom gave the world a gift called Reb Nata Greenblatt but much of the world wasn't zeichet to know him Bechayev, um, despite the thousands whose lives he touched and now with this book we're going to be able to spread that message and inspiration further and I think because your father and father-in-law was so multifaceted each person in their own way young and old men and women will be able to glean something whether it's in his tires avoides gemilas chasadim this his 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 humor his finding the joy in Yiddishkeit whatever it is that uh, Reb Nato was able to find Amir Tashem will all be able to take from that in our own lives so uh, any any final words before we wrap up um, I do hope that, that the book is read, and I think that it will appeal to, to, a, to a, a broad spectrum of, uh, of our brothers and sisters in Klai's role. I think it has broad appeal. He, from what I saw, he wrote it beautifully, and uh, I, I, I felt that I had a Ben Tyra, and I felt this should be written by a Ben Tyra, because you needed to have that sensitivity to what my father was, it had to come from a person that understands what Tyra is, or it would be lost. And mm-hmm. um, I did want Klyestrol to learn from it. You know, the world says it's as a, a joke, Achrimos Kedoshim, that after a person dies, everybody becomes, you know, he becomes holy, you know? Mm-hmm. And I thought about that, and it's, 
there's another part to it that's serious, and that is because if a person passes away and then you start looking at his life carefully, and you start really saying who was the person, then you can often find Kedusha there. Mm-hmm. And I think the book is, after his passing, Zechariah Levracha, I think it was, uh, it's an opportunity to see where that Kedusha was because of the work that Rav Botnik did, because he spoke to a hundred people, mm-hmm. and because he did literally a year of, of research, you can actually see how much was there, and we can see Kedusha, and hopefully we can grow from it and learn from there and, mm-hmm. and grow ourselves. Amen. Amen. He should be a Melitz Yajer. Amen. Thank you. For Rabbi Amen. Greenblatt, Mrs. Greenblatt, thank Amen. you again for, for coming out. Thank it you. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.